Walmart est l'endroit numéro un pour économiser sur l'épicerie. Économisez 3,33 sur un emballage d'une livre de fraises fraîches, maintenant seulement 2,64 chez Walmart. It's the Bob McCallum Podcast, and it's brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers online casino and sportsbook app today. Bob McCallum, John Shannon with you. Robert? Something a little different today, John. Um, a couple of hockey guys uh, on the program, Trip Tracy and Justin Bourne. Trip is a uh, color commentator for Carolina. Yes, sir. And uh, Justin is with uh, the fan in Toronto, um, does a radio program there. Um, But both of them are alcoholics. Uh, both of them um, have gotten over the problem. And we will talk about it today. Today, today, that's the, that's one of the issues to talk about, right? Right. That's exactly it. Every day is a different day and, and every day is a challenge. So we will we'll talk to these two guys about this disease. And it is a disease. Um, how they made their way through it. How it started. And hopefully where it goes somewhere down the road. So Trip Tracy, Justin Bourne, when we come back after this. Hi, this is Bob McCowan for BetRivers.com. Hey, if you're looking for a sports book or casino app, you should check out the BetRivers Sports and Casino app today. Play all of your favorite casino games for real money anywhere and anytime. Plus, get in the action with each sports game with hundreds of sports betting options. And get ready to feel like a VIP because you'll earn both loyalty level points and bonus store points on every real money wager you make. You must be 19 plus, available in Ontario only. Please play responsibly. If you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone close to you, contact Connex Ontario at 1 866 531 2600 or speak to an advisor free of charge. BetRivers.com. Walmart is the number one place to save on groceries. Save $3.33 on a one-pound pack of fresh strawberries. Now only $2.64 at Walmart. And we are back. Uh, it's McCown and Shannon with you as per usual. We are joined today by uh, Trip Tracy's former goaltender and uh, now color commentator with uh, Carolina. And Justin Bourne, who is an assistant coach with the Toronto Marlies, uh, familiar certainly to uh, sports fans in Toronto for his work with uh, with Sportsnet over the years. Um, guys, thank you very much for taking time. Uh, an unusual topic today. Uh, it's not so much hockey; it's more personal. Um, both of these guys had uh, alcohol problems. I assume over the course of their career and have had to deal with uh, that problem. And uh, we wanted to have them on to kind of discuss this. This is, uh, this is something that is perceived to be uh, pro more problematic, perhaps, in professional sports than in society in general. You think that's true, Tripp? Um, yeah, Bob, first of all, it's a, it's, I'm really grateful. Uh, it's a privilege to be here with you. Um, I, I, I think that the biggest thing that I think about is that Alcoholism and addiction touches everybody in some form or fashion, uh, whether it be them themselves, in my case, 
or somebody that they love, friends and family. Um, so everybody can identify. Uh, and uh, because of that, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's something that everybody can reach out and touch. And in my case, uh, I battled it for many years. And uh, <laughs> the fact that uh, I missed a game uh, due to drinking last year in New York, it became a public incident, uh, which I'm actually very grateful for at this point, because by, by staying on the same road, which I want more than anything for myself, I actually have really a, a difference in service to, to make a difference in people's lives uh, because it touches everybody. Right. Jason, what do you think? Yeah. Oh, Justin. Uh, Justin, <laughs> sorry. I'm just, I apologize. No, all good. Um, you know, I, I have thought about that a lot and I, I don't tend to think that in hockey or in sports in general, it's more common or more prevalent by in terms of like genetics or anything that way. I think it's everywhere. I do think that sports and sports culture kind of, oh, it sets us up to encourage it. And in hockey, there's a lot of this alpha machismo. And I know going through, you know, college hockey and all that, the guy who could drink the most might get the most attention. And, you know, they're, you're prone to excess and excess is celebrated at times. And so I think it kind of, it can kickstart something that I don't think it's more common. It just sort of pushes people towards trying things again in excess that they may not have had if they were in a different walk of life. Justin, as a frame of reference, uh, and I, I, if, if this is a hard question, I apologize, but how long were you in denial? You know, what's interesting, John, is I hear from people all the time that uh, acceptance is the, the first step, right? The first thing you have to do is admit you have a problem. Um, you know, I feel like I was maybe a little different in trip. You can, you know, weigh in on, on how it went for you. But for me, I knew I was an alcoholic and, and accepted it maybe five years before I got help. But I had this, this denial that it would be manageable. Like you guys know lots of guys in the hockey world where you say, oh, you know, that guy, that ex-player, you know, he drinks a ton or whatever, but they have it together and they can maintain the family and whatever. I kind of believed in my, you know, I believed that people had what I had, but were able to manage it in some way. And so I was like, okay, I'm an alcoholic. I have no doubt about that. I require alcohol in my body, you know, almost at all times, but I, I see other people that drink a ton too and have success. I wonder how I go about managing this. And so I set out to hide it and to build a life around where drinking was normal and at the people would see me drunk, but it'd be at normal events. And eventually it got to the point where, you know, in the program, and I assume trip has been this way too, it life just became uh, truly unmanageable. And it's not, it was just a matter of time till it got away with me, uh, away from me. So yeah, for me, it wasn't like one day I was like, wow, maybe I have a problem. It was like, I have a problem now how do i live with this problem and that just wasn't it's not a practical life plan you know man i wonder if, I, I wonder if you guys think um you would have had an alcohol pro had this alcohol problem if you weren't hockey players how much of this was about the the choices that you made growing up to be a hockey player was that influential justin yeah, I think so. You know, I think it was just the environment that I was in. I talked about that, like heavy drinking culture. I remember being a kid, you know, my dad played for the Islanders for years and we had a, he had a celebrity tournament in Kelowna every year. And so they'd come back to our house after, and you know, you got 20 ex hockey guys hitting golf balls off a cliff into the Okanagan Lake. And you can imagine the volume of empties around, you know, like I was just around an environment at times where I saw that and thought, this is how cool people do it, you know? And so I did think 
it was cool to drink. And I think that was an element when I went to college and started drinking and, you sure. know, felt more comfortable and felt cooler. So like, again, I don't blame hockey and, and I, that's, I don't, that wasn't my goal in like coming out with this stuff. It was um, it, not to be like, we need to fix hockey culture. It, it certainly had a role in it, but part of the book that I wrote is just grappling with what mm. is hockey's role in, in where I am now in my life. Trip, how about you? Yeah. Um, boy, it's, there's so many things that come, come to my mind. Um, the first thing is, is that uh, with regards to, to being an aspiring hockey player and having dreams of playing in the NHL, uh, I was from a young age in Michigan, I was a, an all or nothing person. Uh, and that helped me. That helped me be able to have a cup of coffee in the NHL as a player. Um, you know, it's, I, I have a disease um, that, uh, that it, it took me a long time to accept. Uh, I tried every form and fashion to monitor my drinking for really a couple of decades. I mean, I sit here and I think about being in Edmonton, getting ready to do a game on television for the Oilers. And that was the first time it had to be around 2003, 2004, that I reached out to someone who happened to be with the team. Um, where I go from, you know, the 12-step recovery program is an anonymous program, and I believe to the ends of the earth in protecting that anonymity, but I was very fortunate that somebody that has had 30-plus uh, years of sobriety was with the team. He remains central in my life and always showed belief in me. That was the first time I remember it. I think the Hotel McDonald in Edmonton that I reached out late one night and said, I think I've got a problem. Uh, that was the first step. I do believe that once you go from being a cucumber to a pickle, you can never, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you try, you can't go back to being a cucumber. I had five and a half years sobriety at one point in time. Uh, I was very honest about it, but uh, I, I had a girlfriend who I was dating. At one point, we were having dinner in Miami, and she looked at me and she said, why can't you just have one glass of wine? I didn't drink then. Um, but that made me think it would be different. I was older. I had learned hard lessons that uh, I would be able to drink normally. I talked to my friends and family. The first drinks I had after five and a half years were with my parents. When I look at it, five and a half years removed from drinking, the first night I had alcoholic behavior. And by the, the grace of God and uh, the miracle uh, of circumstances and a much needed public incident that smashed me down in New York and gave me full acceptance that I'm an alcoholic. I, I was given that surrender in April of last year that I have a disease. I think it goes back to my childhood and aspiring to be a hockey player that I was all or nothing and put everything I had into chasing that dream. Uh, and that's in my DNA and that's my cross to bear. And the good news is, is once you accept that there is if you're willing to do the work, an easy solution that has worked for countless people. Grip, can you can you recount the New York event for us? Because there's lots of people that listen to the podcast that aren't Carolina Hurricane hockey fans like the rest of us, aren't closet caniacs like some of us. Um, of of how you got to that point and 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 how the team supported you. Yeah, John, I um, I resisted for years that I was an alcoholic because I didn't drink every day. I would go weeks and months without it. Uh, for the most part, I was always an extremely jolly, happy drinker. Um, and both of these things, I think, uh, because I didn't become a jerk when I would drink uh, and that I would go weeks and months without it, that uh, 
that people really didn't come to me and, and tell me that I had a problem. The Hurricanes, with tremendous support before New York, they did. And, and they have been absolutely unbelievable because they've given me uh, as many chances as a cat with nine lives. In New York, uh, this is the disease that I have. It was the first time in all my years, John, that we stayed in Manhattan for the swing, first with the Devils and then the Islanders, played the Islanders on Saturday, but staying in Manhattan. I came back on the bus. I wasn't planning on going out. I had a date that night. She was coming in from out of town. Uh, I was genuinely planning on staying in, in, at the hotel. Once she was coming and it was a late dinner, uh, I went to go meet her. I'm an alcoholic. I, I drink for energy. I was tired. We had just had a back-to-back. -back. That was Sunday. That led to Monday. That led to Monday night. I went to the morning skate on Tuesday at Madison Square Garden. I came back to the hotel, had a terrible hangover. Um, uh, there's Advil on every street corner. Uh, alcoholics uh, experience all sorts of yes, things you never would fathom that you would do. And I came back to my hotel room and I said, you know, I'm just going to have a sip of something uh, to calm my head as I was doing my game notes. And the funny thing was, is there was a bottle of gin and was the cheapest thing. And my dad, God rest his soul, always said, trip gin's like climbing a cliff. It builds a false sense of confidence. And then without warning, you're in the deep abyss. I never drank gin once. That was the only time I took a couple of sips. I was doing my game notes, fell asleep passed out, woke up, it was 7.01, the game started at seven o'clock. Um, obviously it all hit me that uh, I was probably done with the Hurricanes, The Hurricanes were chasing and won a, a division title that night. So I kept drinking, uh, thinking that, you know, I've just cost myself my broadcasting career. Uh, they won the division. Uh, Donnie Waddell uh, texted me after the game and said, hey, we're going back to the plane. Do you want us to pick you up at, at, your, at the hotel? Chris Drury, who had just lost a division, came over to my hotel. Um, and I said to Don, I said, no, Don, I'm going to sleep it off. I'll be back uh, first thing uh, in the morning. At that point, I believe I had what is uh, considered many alcoholics have in a moment of clarity. Rod Brindamore's wife, Amy, it's emotional to think about. Rod Brindamore's Amy called me during the game, implored me to get room service. I had trays of room service in front of me. I had uh, emptied the mini bar. And uh, I figured that I'm getting fired by the hurricanes. I could have hit the streets in New York. And I looked at that dark, em empty hotel room. And I said, not only is this not working for me, but this stopped working for me a long, long time ago. And I can tell you from that moment, uh, I go to where I go for my meetings each and every day to stay connected. Uh, but the obsession to drink, the thought to drink has been removed to the point where alcohol actually, actually makes me nauseous. That's very different than my previous five and a half years of sobriety. I remember walking out of the hotel the next day, which was a Wednesday, and I said to myself, whether I have the opportunity to come back to Carolina or not, uh, this will be the very best decision of my life. And uh, the Hurricanes, uh, Tom Dundon, Don Waddell, my dearest of friends in the organization, Rod Brindamore, have uh, shown profound belief in me. I think about the privilege and the gratitude of being on hand for the stadium series event on Saturday night. And the best way I could repay the support of the hurricanes, the hockey world is to stay on the road that uh, I'm so grateful to be on that I want for myself. And it's the happiest I've been in my life. So the one thing I, the one thing you didn't tell in the story was that you also tweeted out 
you you in uh, with a blood alcohol content you went on social media i sure did and uh i can tell you that um you know because i have i know of countless people in the game and the meetings that i go to john that uh, that have paved the road of how uh recovery and sobriety works and uh, one of the there are 12 steps and 12 traditions and one of the traditions is uh the program is based upon anonymity attraction not promotion I can assuredly say that there is not a chance on earth that I ever uh, would have gone public with a clear mind. I was drunk. And uh, it came, the tweets that I made on Tuesday night as the Hurricanes were winning a division came from a good place. Uh, they were honest about um, my alcoholism. Um, but then the next morning after, truthfully, I had a night of, of detox, um, of physical detox, uh, emotional detox, uh, Don called me first thing the next morning, and uh, I felt that uh, now all of a sudden I'm looking at uh, my tweets, and I felt that I needed to own it, uh, and I then needed to go away and uh, and build the foundation of my sobriety. But that uh, that's the crux of of why the tweets were there. It was a drunken decision. I wouldn't have done it with clear head, but John, being the mentor you've been for me for couple of decades in my broadcast career and as a friend, I'm actually grateful it happened because now I have an opportunity of service that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, and this must be it. it, it um, obviously, this is a disease, disease and it's difficult to deal with. But Justin, you know, I, I would gather there are many who do not go public with their disease. Mm -hmm. uh, you guys both have. Mm -hmm. How difficult was that decision and what was it motivated by? You know, I think one of the saddest parts about first off trip, I mean, I, I relate and connect to so many things in there and um, just so happy for you that, you know, the support you've got and you found such a good place um, really uh, just moves me to hear you talk. Um, you know, the, for me, the decision to go public was that in one of the things that really spurs alcoholics on is isolation. And, you know, that's one things they say your condition wants to do is drive, drive a wedge between you and everything else that matters to you. And so whether that's your family, your loved ones, your, your work, your whatever it may be, and, and foster that isolation. So you end up, I did like trip, ended up alone in a hotel room. You know, my wife had sent me away. Uh, you know, emptying the mini bar by myself and looking around the room. And that's what, you know, the condition wants of you. It wants you isolated. And, um, you know, alcoholics can feel alone in a room of people. And, and so what I wanted was to not feel that anymore. One of the first things that really made me believe that I could get sober was, you know, Trip mentioned slogans is you are not alone. And just connecting with people who can relate and understand and I felt for years that I had been flaky and, you know, I made plans and broke them and committed to things I couldn't follow through on. And, you know, for me, you know, coming out with this and, and sharing it publicly is I wanted people to connect with me. Mm. I wanted people to understand where I was coming from, why I had been the way I had been. I wanted people who were like I was before, who were alone and lonely and isolated to know that they're not alone and that they can reach out to me. And I get it, like in some of those rooms of recovery, you hear some of some stories that a normal person may walk in here and go, 
like I can't you can't fathom some of the things people do to drink. And you know, when you're in the room with other people that tell these absurd stories of drinking hand sanitizer or vanilla extract or whatever it may be out of desperation, you look around and you go, I get it. Like I've I understand how it gets that low, how dire it can become. Um, and so for me, it was a matter of connection. This is my best chance at reaching others and and also in a selfish way, protecting myself from becoming isolated again. So do you, do you, Justin, do you think going public means when you're around people, you have five monitors around you? <laughs> no, it's, it's not necessarily that, that I'm looking for, for monitors. It's that, you know, I want people to know who I really am. You know, the things that you always hear that corny stuff. That's like, you know, everyone's fighting a battle or whatever, but they are. And I, I don't feel like you really become connected with people until you understand what their fight is and what it is that drives them and motivates them and whatever. And so, you know, for me, it's, it's not so much supervision as much as just being able to truly foster connections with people. And, what, and you talked about support. Where's your wife in all of this? I mean... You know, I, that's, that's the be all end all for me. We moved to Toronto. We moved to Arizona after I was done playing because we just wanted to live somewhere warm. I had lived in Alaska and every other cold place on earth. So it was just her and I there for a few years. Work brought me to Toronto. You know, we didn't know anyone in the city when we moved here. Um, we've since had a couple of kids, but we don't have family around. And so, you know, she watched the descent into this and, you know, she was the one who first said, well, knowingly, do you need help? And, you know, from there, you know, uh, I stopped earning money to go away for a month to go to rehab. She kept working. She kept watching our kids. You know, she stuck with me and believed in me and came in to visit me every weekend in treatment. And, and to this day, you know, she also, by the way, you know, she liked to party and have fun. We did. We both did. That was part of what we did when we were first out together. She stopped drinking for two years just because she didn't want to have it around. Like, you know, it's, we have wine in our house now and we've moved on. But like um, when I was, after I went to rehab, I went to a place, you know, to aftercare where you meet weekly and talk with counselors on the, what the challenges are of reintegrating to life. And you talk to some people who tell you stories like, you know, one guy went back home and his, his mom was waiting there like, oh, thank God you, you're back. Like I need the dealer's number. I haven't been able to call him. You know, that's the environment he's walking back into. And my wife is there. She stops drinking. You know, our, everything is good with our home life. I just, it's its infinite gratitude to her and, and really wouldn't have been possible or even worth it. I probably wouldn't even done it without her. So yeah, it's its about your support system. Well, and Trip, I know you well enough that and talk to you enough to know that the most important woman in your life is your mother. Uh, and uh, and you, you're and living in Carolina, but she's in Michigan. How is how has that support system helped, and 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 what what you're going through? Well, it's uh, John. It um, recovery gives me the opportunity um, to, to to make good choices. And uh, just when I think about my mom, she's 87 years old. Um, Oh, she doesn't want anybody to know that. Actually, Sydney Crosby <laughs> sent her a wonderful video on her 87th birthday because she looks way younger. She doesn't want anybody to know that. Uh-oh. Oh, well, I uh, hope you're still in the will. I hope, I hope you're still in the will after this. And, and just some background, by the way, quickly on John Shannon. Uh, the, the lockout in 2004-2005, Jim Rutherford, my uh, boss at the time, uh, gave me some great advice uh, that uh, – 
you know, to further my broadcast career, uh, he wanted me to reach out to John Shannon and to Harry Neal, and they both took me under their wings. So that's the origin of my relationship and the mentorship with John Shannon. Um, during the, the break and bye week, I, I went to Michigan. Um, my mom, my dad passed away about four and a half years ago, and uh, uh, it's been tougher. They were married for 50 plus years, and I took my dog, Frank, who's right underneath me right now, and I named him Frank after Sinatra as a constant reminder that my way wasn't working. Um, which is part of support. Uh, so I spent that time with my mom. And, you know, then I think about, you know, the Hurricanes just had the outdoor game prior to that on Thursday night. And uh, John was coaching me as he always does. Uh, I uh, emceed the Cam Ward uh, Hall of Fame ceremony. And Cam was my dad's favorite player, probably because my dad sponsored AAA hockey in Detroit, produced a lot of NHLers. And uh, probably because A, Cam was the goaltender, I was not. And B, in the 10 years where the Hurricanes weren't very good, the grace that Cam Ward, along with Eric Stahl, handled those years. And then you think about it, Cam Ward, when he first went to the podium with Montreal Canadiens in the house, what a classy move by Montreal. He looked back at me and said, how proud he is of me. And um, building the foundation in, in early sobriety. My dad would have been beaming about that based upon how he felt about Cam. But when I think about support, yes, John, it's, it's my mom. And I can't help but think about um, my dear friend, Rod Brindamore. I had dinner with Rod with a couple of his kids in New York the night before I started that bender uh, that I mentioned earlier on Sunday. And his, his kids and a couple of friends, there wasn't any drinking going on. It was an early dinner. They're always six o'clock. And in about 10 minutes, uh, you know, they occur with Rod. They're rapid. And uh, one of his kids asked him, hey, dad, do you have a curfew for the players on the road? And Rod goes, no, I just have a simple rule. If you throw the ball over the fence, you've got to go get it. I didn't know then starting the next night that I would throw the ball over the fence. And Rod, who has shown extraordinary support for me, um, has allowed me to, when we first made the trip back to New York, uh, it was New Year's Day that we drove in this year, my first trip back to New York. I sent him a message and I said, partner, I'm so grateful that you allowed me to go get the ball all over the fence. I'm still working on it. And then the other cool part of it that day, I do a bench interview, Bob, Justin, John. And uh, oftentimes after I do that bench interview, there are referees that are uh, stretching, getting ready for the game. I will not mention the name of the referee, but... He grabbed me that day uh, in New Jersey as he was getting ready to officiate the game. And he said, because of the public nature that he knew, he said, my son is uh, 18 years old right now. He's 102 days sober, I believe, at the time. I want to thank you for your message. Uh, there have been two other referees that have shared similar stories after my bench interviews when I'm walking up to do the game. Uh, that is why I'm grateful for the public nature of, of my disease. Guys, we got to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back in a second trip. Tracy and Justin Bourne are with us back after this. When was the last time everyone agreed on what's for dinner? You want Chinese food, they want pizza, and someone is always craving Froyo. Well, there's something for everyone on DoorDash. Ordering is easy. Open up the DoorDash app, choose what you want from where you want, and your items will be left safely outside your door with our default contactless delivery setting. For a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app 
and enter code BOBCAST23. That's 25% off, up to $10 in value, and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code BOBCAST23. Don't forget, that's code BOBCAST23 for 25% off of your first order with DoorDash. Subject to change, terms apply. Walmart est l'endroit numéro un pour économiser sur l'épicerie. Économisez 2,51 sur un bloc de 400 grammes de fromage Black Diamond, maintenant seulement 4,47 chez Walmart. McCollin Shannon, back with you with Trip Tracy and Justin Bourne as we discuss uh, the fact that both of them are alcoholics and, 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 for, and the and struggle for, they went through. And for, for the record, uh, I don't think you guys have ever really met, have you? We haven't. No, I know Trip and Trip's story, but I don't. I haven't met him. So hello to Trip. <laughs> I just admire Justin from afar. This is a, this is a privilege to be with you guys. But this is this is, this awesome. is really cool. And, and Justin could probably talk about the fact. I know for me, for years, when I would go into the meetings that I go to, I wanted to compare. How am I different? Now I identify, and I certainly, uh, with what Justin has said, said thus far this morning. I can identify in a myriad of different ways, which which gives me strength and helps me for just today. And it's it's all about just today. Guys, you'll you'll forgive me, but many of us um, really don't understand this as well as we should. I'm wondering if, in the course of uh, the alcohol abuse, did either of you turn to drugs, and was that a, a part of the process at all? Uh, Justin, I'll start. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Justin. Go ahead, Trip. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, it's in interesting. Bob is like it. So yes, drugs are a part of my story. Um, you know, we had a a shady doctor. I would say uh, when I played in the East Coast League, who has since gone to jail. Um, you know, would basically bring a script pad to a party and say, "What do you want?" Um, you're playing in the minors. You got a ten hour bus ride after your game. You're not getting on a charter jet. Um, you know, Percocet and, you know, muscle relaxers, Ambien, Xanax, those were all ample, uh, I would say, when I was in the minors. I remember, like, money on the board being a thing, you know, for hockey teams in the minors. Guys used to write, like, a couple of pills on the board in code, so the coaches and staff wouldn't know. Like, it was bad those years for me. And then being out of it, like, I'm, you know, I, I, I can relate to Trip in that I'm not a as a drunk, I'm a pretty happy guy. Don't change. Don't uh, particularly become a jerk. But if you're out late enough and party enough for me, um, you know, there's a drug in particular that allows you to sort of sober up a little bit at times. And so I could continue drinking more. So when I did do drugs, that being cocaine, by the way, um, when I did do drugs, um, it was really just about my drinking. I just wanted to be able to drink longer and stay out more. So it never became problematic for me. The pills might have been when I was playing that could have got there, I think. But fortunately, just the supply was tougher to come by for me. So, yeah, I mean, it was a part of it. But it, it, all of it really for me is about alcohol and drinking. So dr drinking didn't lead to um, the pills. Is that what you're sort no. of saying? No, that's more of a, a hockey environment, hockey culture thing. I, don't, I wouldn't gotcha. blame drinking for that. Yeah. Trip, what about you? Uh, by the grace of God, uh, my experience is only in alcohol. But with that being said, um, Bob, I have a disease of the mind and alcohol is just a symptom. Um, I can tell you, I've only seen, I saw cocaine one time in my life. I was at Harvard at the time and I walked out of the party because in my own head, 
um, you know, I thought that was a whole different level. Um, and that's the only time I've seen it. I, my story is just with drinking, but with that being said, um, I think that there is a, I think the stigma of it attached to alcohol has really taken tremendous positive strides. Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done with regards to addiction, other drugs, whether it be pills, whether it be, uh, I don't know, cocaine, heroin, whatever they are. Um, and I, I think that that's profoundly important. My journey, my experience uh, only deals uh, with alcohol, um, but I have a disease of the mind uh, that uh, alcohol is simply a symptom and without basic, uh, protecting the anonymity of the 12 step program that I go to, um, that is why the 12 steps are so essential because it allowed me to recognize in the disease of my mind that I have I never recognized how self-centered I was. I picked up virtually every tab, professional waster of money. Um, it, it, it really taught me at, at my very core that I have a self-centered disease. It also taught me that my will wasn't working. Again, that's why I named my dog Frank to, mm -hmm. to remind me that my way wasn't working. It's a spiritual, not a religious program, but it has allowed me to not to get too deep, but through prayer and meditation, uh, to get the heck out of the way, to move over from the spirit steering wheel to the passenger seat and just, it's not to say it's not an action program. It's not after I had that moment of clarity in that uh, dark New York hotel room that Aladdin showed up and said, I'm gonna take you for a magic carpet ride. It's every bit of work, but that work is not allowing uh, my will to run the show. And uh, that's a central piece to it. And the central piece is out of the 12 steps, Bob, John, Justin knows this, that uh, the one about alcohol is only the first step. The other 11 are about trying to be the best version of yourself. Mm. So, Justin, how do you cope? How do you cope on a daily basis? You know, I don't cope. I don't, you know, it, it's I'm. I don't find it hard anymore. You know, Tripp talked about, you know, sort of being relieved of this obsession. Uh, I'm freed. And I know that sounds like some uh, I, like cultish way of phrasing it, but like you, it's tough to explain the prison that I lived in. Like I, I used to wake up. So I wrote when I was in the worst of it, I was writing for The Athletic and I had to write two articles a week. I can write an article in I don't know, a few hours if it's bad enough. Um, so I had a lot of free time on my hands and I spent all of it shaping my life around alcohol. Dial a bottle would open at 9.30 a.m. and could drop something off. I could make sure I have enough beer in the fridge so that when my wife came home and smelled booze on my breath, I, you know, I could say, I just had a beer. Of course, there's booze on my breath. I had to have enough vodka in the house that I hidden so that when she went to bed, I could pull that out and drink it. You know, I had to arrange my events my whole life around these like window of clarity where I could write for a few hours. It was prison truly and hiding and running. And so now I live my life. I get to, I get the whole day to function and go out. I didn't want to go on uh, trips. Like my family wanted to go to Chudley's apple farm or something. I'd be like, that's, ah, you know, by then I'm going to have the shakes. I'm sorry. I can't commit to doing that. So I don't feel anymore. Like I don't get to do something. I get to do 10 times as many things as I used to do because of this. So for me, it is everything I wanted in that it's not, uh, it's not a, how do I get through the day anymore? It's that I get to use the day now. But, but, but you stay busy though. Is that, is that a key to all yeah. of this? Yeah. I would say, you know, that's a great point, John, like free time is the worst thing for me. 
this past summer was the first summer that I've uh, had a, like a long stretch of time to kind of use at my will. And it's not that I felt the temptation to drink. It's that, you know, idle hands or the devils, mm. whatever the expression is. So for me, I, I do stay busy, but also because I'm living a more fulfilling life, I've connected with more people and I want to do more professionally. And, you know, the book was one project that I was working on, but I've also got another couple of projects. Like I'm motivated and ambitious, which for things I didn't think that I would ever be. So yeah, the free time is, is scary, but my kids are six and three and I'm, you know, and I work and I'm married and like, I don't find that I have a ton of free time. Um, I, I like the busy, the, the way that I'm busy now. And Trip, you, your world is such a routine when you think that you have 75, 70 to 75 hockey games to do, and there's a bus that picks you up, and there's a bus that drops you off, and you, you have to be at the arena at a certain point. There are windows in that. Is, is that the toughest coping part? Um, you know, I, I can tell you, actually, John, um, because, you know, I spent all summer in Michigan doing my because it worked to build my foundation for my five and a half years of sobriety, uh, my 90 meetings in the first 90 days, and then continued. To, you know, I remember Rod called me after the first, uh, when I hit 90 days, and he goes, what are you going to do now? I said, I'm going to start another 90 and 90. So probably after that second 90 and 90 is when I came back to Carolina and all the people with the hurricanes around the league that uh, care so much about my health, you know, they asked me if the road was going to be tough. And the truth is, my triggers aren't on the road. I, I've done it. I did it for several years sober before. Uh, thus far this year, it's just different. My triggers are, you know, what led me to my darkest place in the isolation that Justin mentioned a few minutes ago was a relationship that I wanted. I was in love with someone. It didn't go my way. Uh, and, you know, I remember, you know, when I was, I was calling games, I can truthfully say I'm old school. So I didn't take anything for it with regards to uh, depression pills, but I know I was in a depression. There are certain things as a man that you can feel are different. This was in 2017. And uh, I remember uh, I was not drinking a lot at the time, um, but I was drinking some, not a lot. Um, and I remember a night before a game in Columbus, I was just sitting watching hockey with Rod Brindamore and John Forson. And, and uh, Rod said, hey, get your routine going, start working out. And um, I didn't do that. I isolated myself between games. I'd come home and oftentimes the TV would be, uh, I wouldn't even turn on the TV and that isolation can, can lead you to the darkest of places. Again, by the grace of God, I trudged the road and uh, was able to get through that. But that goes to show again, why I wasn't even drinking very much, but that's the mental disease that I have as an alcoholic um, where alcohol is simply a symptom. The game day routine, John, <laughs> <laughs> Whether it be at home or on the road, it's just different. I get up extremely early uh, when I'm here in Raleigh. I'm at the dog park right over here at about 4.30 in the morning because I don't want to rush to my 6.30 morning meditation meeting. If it's an off day where the canes aren't <laughs> planned, I'm not embarrassed about this. I'm probably out like a light by 7.30, uh, 8 o'clock during game days. Um, you know, you mentioned those little holes and stretches between, you know, the morning skate and the buses. I'm probably, I've worked out a lot. I'm eating a lot better. Um, and, uh, and whatever the best version is of me as a color analyst, again, John, with all of uh, your, your teachings that go on to this day, my mind is its best version of itself. A, to have what 
come out of my lips, be exactly what I want to say, and be get the heck out of the way. John's smiling, I'm sure, right now, and really focus on less is more. I didn't do a ton of games over the years uh, when I was hungover um, because I was the kind of person that didn't drink every day that made me think I'm not an alcoholic. But I can tell you this. When I did games where I had been out the night before, it was a totally different approach because I didn't have confidence in my mind. It was almost like a player in a three and four, you know, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. You know, I just wanted and I didn't like that approach because it, it wasn't even like I was analyzing the hockey game. I was trying just to um, to avoid an abomination. But then, of course, the you know, God has a great sense of humor. I'm sick earlier this year. I've got no voice. I probably shouldn't have done the game, but I'm you know, probably worried that if I take the game off, people are going to think that I've relapsed and I go on and I see Reese's peanut butter cups on Halloween. I mean, and that was a complete <laughs> surprise. Um, you guys, I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about the, the temptation that must be constant of some sort. Um, do you avoid going to parties? Like what, what is it like? Jason, with you, with Justin. with Justin, with, with you, with you, go, when you go to, um, you know, when a bunch of friends yeah. get together, or whatever, and they're all having a drink, and I mean, you're not going to say anything, but right. you're not. Is is, <laughs> yeah. is that temptation difficult? Yeah, you know, I've I've learned to manage myself a little bit. So, you know, part of what Trip is talking about with the program is, you know, not being afraid to go in any room or anywhere. You know, you're not hiding from these sort of scenarios, but it's different in a number of ways. One is that I've learned I do like to hold on to something so that people don't bother me. You know, whether that be, uh, you know, a soda and lime or whatever it may be. I just, you know, yeah. people, you know, you know, the expression, the old, uh, you can't trust someone who doesn't drink. No one wants to see you there holding, you know, like a box of apple juice. So I do like to hold something where people just leave me alone and assume I am having a drink. But by the same token, I've learned that it's not fun to be at those places long because the type of conversation gets repetitive <laughs> or obnoxious or whatever. So I don't, you know, if I get invited to parties, I don't not want to not go because I'm afraid I'm going to be tempted. It's because it sucks. You know, so I, I will go for the first half an hour to an hour when you get the best of everyone. They've had their first drink, their energy is up, good moods. And then you do the Homer Simpson into the bushes because I don't need to be a part of what happens the next three, four hours. Will you walk into a bar in a hotel when you're on the yeah, road? I, I, yeah, like even now, uh, sorry, uh, that's probably for trip, but even now I'll, I'll pop into a no. pub and have lunch and it doesn't phase me. Trip, what about you? The freedom, Bob, that I have, uh, I can go anywhere. With that being said, um, you know, one of the lines from the meetings, it's, it's a great one, is, uh, you know, you keep going to the barbershop. Bob, by the way, you have great hair today. You keep, you keep going to the barbershop, <laughs> sooner or later, you're going to get your hair cut. And then <laughs> the, the, the difference for me is that, you know, life is different. And I, I, I love where it's at. And again, the blessing for me in the public nature Everybody knows I don't drink. Everybody knows, that, you know, I'm an alcoholic. So I'm not going to get any peer pressure. I and then it. my journey along the way, <laughs> I remember this is, this is the alcoholic I am. In 2004, five, when we lost the whole season. So there's nothing going on. I ended up, I was in an Irish pub in Raleigh. And uh, I had just come from the gym. I wasn't even planning on, on, on staying out long. 
that led to staying in the Irish pub all night. And I was with a couple of guys that uh, played. I'll keep them uh, anonymous. And we got on a plane, went to Vegas. All of a sudden, I'm in Vegas playing blackjack with Kiefer Sutherland, who was genuinely a big hockey fan. This leads to, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. The next night, I'm still in my workout clothes. And Motley Crue's having a comeback tour, you know, and they're uh, playing in Vegas. I'm hanging out with Motley Crue. And I finally go to, uh, to get myself outfitted because we were going to a club. And that led, I was out on the dance floor and I'm dancing, not a good dancer. And I, I look at a couple of uh, the people I was with and I said, I'm out of here. And I actually went, that's the one time I went to a rehab facility in Southern California. And I remember those 30 days. I spent so much of those 30 days, guys, thinking about what was I going to drink that looked like it was alcohol, but wasn't. I was consumed by it. <laughs> so then you really? fast forward all these years, I could care less about if I'm having a coffee or a Pellegrino, it doesn't matter to me. But along with what Justin was saying, and I was howling here, I didn't see really anybody this summer in Michigan other than my mom. And you know, I'd play golf a little here and there because I want to focus on bricks and mortar building my sobriety right. So I a bunch of guys that I hadn't seen. I went to go see them after they had been on the boat all day. I wouldn't go on a boat because you got no exit plan. And quite frankly, they're all getting schlossed. And I go to the party after the boat. And one of my dear friends, he's a big guy. He comes up to me and he's, I mean, he's sloppy. And he says, I'm so sorry. He calls me the angry hornet. He goes, I'm so sorry. You know, the hornsy. He says, you know, am I making it difficult for you? And he was, I mean, not the best version he could be of himself. And I said to him, I call him Big Daddy. I said, Big Daddy, I said, you have no idea what you're doing for me right now. You're giving <laughs> me for today my absolute first step, the one step that my life became, I'm powerless over alcohol and my life became unmanageable. The one step you have to do 100%. So, you know, all I do, and because people pleasing was a big part of it for me. Nights I didn't want to go out, that I would feel that peer pressure. And then, you know what I was doing in those cases? Because chances are I've been out the night before. I was drinking for energy. A beer that would have worked the night before wouldn't work. It had to be vodka. And then all of a sudden you make a complete ass of yourself. So um, I have no problem uh, getting away from that people-pleasing codependency uh, part of me that is a character defect and a character defect for many alcoholics. I will go, I will enjoy myself. I want good conversation. If that's a hotel bar, as long as it's a safe space, no problem. But I'll leave when I'm ready to go. Mm. Walmart est l'endroit numéro un pour économiser sur l'épicerie. Économiser 3,33 sur un emballage d'une livre de fraises fraîches, maintenant seulement 2,64 chez Walmart. Do you guys try, do you try and... Um, like, I'm... I'm I hate to say the word obsession, but there, I mean, look at this is something that, that controlled your life for a long period of time. So essentially it was an obsession. Uh, are you inclined to recognize and try and do something about others that you see that you feel may have a problem? Like, are you vocal about it or not at all? No, no. I, I mean, Trip also mentioned earlier uh, in our conversation here, uh, attraction, not promotion. You know, I try to carry myself in a way, represent uh, hopefully what's a better version of myself. And when people are ready, if they see that and they want that for themselves, you know, more than happy to, to be there for people. And I've had a number of people who have reached out to me recently and said, right. I think I might have an issue 
but I don't know that I'm ready yet. And I remember, I remember not being ready. You know, I had had conversations about my drinking in the past and it just, I wasn't personally ready. And, and until someone is, I don't think you can make them. I think that's how, you know, you have a lot of people go to rehab. They don't want to be there. They sober up and then things get way worse when they get out and start up again. I think you have to want it for yourself. So no, I would mm. never push this on anyone else until, until they're ready for it themselves. Justin, the same. You're nodding. I Trip. see. Yeah. Trip. Sorry. It, that is Bob. That is such an unbelievable question because it is in fact built upon attraction, not promotion. Number one, uh, number two, uh, it's the only disease that I can think of that you have to diagnose yourself. Uh, and <laughs> when I've gone back licking my wounds into the meetings I go to, the, the line often is nobody comes in on a winning streak. <laughs> and and, and <laughs> so, and I, and I, but sometimes, you know, like, so people notice a difference in you that you don't notice in yourself. And hopefully then it becomes attractive. So right. whether them, uh, maybe, maybe having the disease or someone they know, they will come up to you and say, you know, what did you do? Uh, you know, and, and where did you go? Um, but I would never say, I mean, I look at uh, my sponsor and I want to protect his anonymity, uh, who, who was a coach of mine um, and sober to this day, 30 plus years, uh, all the times that, uh, that I said, I'm done drinking and I wasn't, uh, he never judged me. Now I did do him a favor because I let him know things aren't getting any better out there. Um, but he, he didn't <laughs> shoot the wounded. He, he constantly welcomed me back in. It's Bob, that is such a fabulous question because I think if, if you went with the, the non-attract, if you went with the promotion approach, you'd lose people that had a chance to get sober. And then the one other quick thing I'd Maybe, say, yeah. sometimes you have to show hard love. Um, I'll tell a story about my, my dear friend, Hall of Famer, Mark Recchi. Um, there was a teammate that he played with that it was very difficult for him that I believe is sober uh, and has been sober a long time uh, that he had to show hard love. By that, you're not going to enable. If you're going to continue to drink, our friendship is going to have to be on hiatus. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to create a rock bottom. Understand. Those are those right. situations sometimes that come into play. And I can also remember in my previous sobriety, Mark was here playing with the Bruins and he passed Guy Lafleur uh, on the all-time points list that night. I had just hit, I think, nine months at the time. And uh, I gave him my chip and I texted him after the game. He was on the bus leaving with Boston. And I said, Rex, I call him Petrus 82 uh, in reference to a great bottle of wine. That's my nickname for him. I said, congratulations on beating, uh, passing Guy Lafleur. And he said, he calls me Chateau Ecam, another bottle of wine. And he said, he can. Uh, your pat, uh, you getting your nine months this morning was far more important to me than passing Guy Lafleur. Those hey, are the kinds of people that are out there that get it, that have yeah. to understand the disease. Usually, you, you, usually Bob closes this part of the show, but uh, let me just say um, how happy I am for both of you, and how proud I am of both of you. Here, here, it was an, uh, Thanks, an honor guys. meeting both of you here. Uh, and uh, we 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 congratulate you on uh, your uh, your success in sobriety. Uh, wish you nothing but the best down the road, and uh, hopefully we get a chance to chat maybe about more about hockey, uh, hockey. down the road. <laughs> Car Carolina, Toronto Eastern Conference Final. That'd be fun. Yeah, we'll let's be. do it. Let's. 
Thanks for having me on, guys. It meant a lot. This is like this is meaningful stuff to me, and talk about connection. So I, I really appreciate you having me on. Well, thank this you is so unbelievable. Thank so you, much, guys. Very special. thanks so much for taking time. Trip Tracy, Justin Bourne. We'll be back in a minute. The Bob McCowan Podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. Unfortunately, life doesn't come with a user manual. So when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether it's a career change, a new relationship, or even becoming a parent. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. The therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and teaching you productive coping skills. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash bobcast. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash bobcast. Well, our sincere thanks to uh, Trip Tracy and Justin Bourne for taking time yeah. to talk to, not only talk to us, but honestly talk to us about this because this has got to be a, a very very i mean the, the whole the whole thing including today's conversation has to be very difficult i i assume you know i it, it's difficult to comprehend because i i i don't understand what they've gone through i don't understand the disease at Neither all do i really and and so that's why I, that's why it was important for them to, to come forward. It, it's amazing. Both of them have done it so publicly. I mean, exactly. Trip Trip literally uh, tweeted out uh, that he's drinking too much and he missed a game and, and the hockey world kind of responded. Uh, Justin uh, wrote a book about it um, and it's called down and back. Uh, it's uh, it's available now. And it's a, it's a phenomenal read about, what he's gone through, what he's put people through, uh, how he's coping. Um, and I, I actually think that both of them were very agreeable to come on the show because talking about it, Bob, is coping. Talking about this kind of thing and making it public um, is part of the process of admitting um, for the them. Issues. For them, yes, yeah. for them. And, and, and it's got nothing to do with anybody else than trip talking about what he went through and and he's in a better place but you know he's got to manage it every day and yeah justin sure. justin's got to he, he wrote the book and now he's got to manage it every day and that must be tremendously difficult which is why i said at the end i'm so proud of both of them they they've they've you know they can return to becoming contributing members to society and that must be so satisfying at this point well, I'm, you know, I must, I must say, I don't have anybody in my life or in my circle that has a problem that I'm aware of. I, I don't believe there is anybody. So this is very, you know, this is not something that comes up in conversation every day. No. And I think that's, uh, you know, hopefully somebody took something positive out of this conversation. Yeah. You're never alone, folks. You're never alone. Uh, that'll do it for us today. We'll be back again tomorrow. For John Shannon, this is Bob McCowan. Have a good day. Goodbye, everybody. 
Walmart est l'endroit numéro un pour économiser sur l'épicerie. Économisez 3,33 sur un emballage d'une livre de fraises fraîches, maintenant seulement 2,64 chez Walmart.